cast back, if you would, for a moment in your thoughts, perhaps a time when you were a child or early teenage. Maybe this won't affect every one of us, but I think a considerable majority it will. Remember how it felt to wonder if anyone liked you. To wonder if you could be accepted. How insecure. How you would check your clothes so carefully and check yourself in the mirror to see if you were acceptable. And you wondered because this was the in-group and maybe you weren't part of the in-group. And you wondered how to be popular, how to be liked, how to be wanted, ultimately how to be loved. It is deep within all of us to want to be liked, to want to be needed, to be loved, to be cared for. I suppose if you were ravingly insane, you might get past that. But even the fellow who killed 32 other people and himself recently in Virginia Tech left behind certain evidence that he had never been accepted, never been wanted, never been cared for. And he finally came to the point he couldn't handle that any longer. Now, I don't know that this is exactly the case, but it's the way human nature goes. And out of absolute frustration, perhaps demon influence or whatever, he came to the point he simply could not handle it anymore. And all he really wanted, probably, if someone had asked him, was to be liked, to be loved, to be wanted, to be needed, to feel a part of things. So it's something that's intrinsic, generic to human beings, wherever they might be. We started a series last time. I digressed into some different areas, and we didn't get very far into it. But here were new Christians, a new religion, called Christianity, and this man whom we are addressing in the book of Hebrews wasn't liked by anyone. And Paul here is having to do a hard sell of 13 chapters to try to get his own people to accept him because they rejected him, didn't like him. Now it's one thing if those people over there don't like us. It's one thing if people we don't maybe know or care about don't like us. But what about our own family, our own friends, our own people? What if they don't like us? We touched on some scriptures last night. I want to go back for a moment to Psalm 22. And we'll see a little bit of, actually quite a little bit, of what Paul was fighting and trying to get the Jews to accept Christ. Verse 12 of chapter 22, we read this last night, but I want to emphasize it in this context. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Verse 16, dogs have compassed me. 
So people around him were just like a pack of mad dogs, barking, snapping, biting. That was basically what he lived with in life. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. He could look down and see all his bones. If he looked in a mirror, it would have been a very pathetic situation. He didn't have to look in the mirror. He could just look down. And they'd flayed the flesh off to the point that his bones were visible. He took all his clothes off, left him naked, divided up his vestures among themselves. So he was hated, barked at, bitten, stripped, ashamed, naked. Let's go to Isaiah 53, just a little bit more. Isaiah 53. Here I want verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. It's easy to read over that and say, well, he was despised and rejected and not really consciously think about it. But what if it were you? Have you ever gone up to a group and suddenly they get quiet as if they don't want you there or as, they, or as if they were talking behind your back and don't want you to hear what they're saying? Maybe they weren't talking about you at all, but that's your perception. It's very unsettling, hurtful. Makes you feel unwanted, unneeded, undesired. Despised. Hated. Rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Says in John, he wept. Why was he sorrowful? Why was he acquainted with grief? The fruit of the Spirit of God is joy, peace, and yet here was a man who saw a great deal of sorrow. He was acquainted with grief. Why? Because the people he tried to love the most, basically all of mankind really, he came here that all people might have salvation. He loved them so much he wanted to come, go through living as a human being, and all that that entails, and save them from themselves and from Satan. He came and made the ultimate sacrifice, giving his life for you and for me. And yet he is rejected of men, despised, and lived with grief. It is a grief that continues to this day, because human beings still reject him. Even people who say they love him, and that he is their savior, reject him totally. They take his name, they believe on him, as they say, but they don't believe him. They hate his message. They hate his message with a passion. They all believe his laws, his statutes, his way of life is done away, and all you need is the love of the word Jesus, and everything is fine in your life. You don't have to do anything. So even though they accept his name and on the surface say they love Christ, in actuality, they hate him. He himself said, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
And he said, if you don't keep my commandments, you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. So he equates accepting him with following and obeying him. Now the Jews that Paul was writing to were being converted, and yet they apparently still had attitudes whereby they not only rejected him as a person, but were also rejecting the message. So he had to go all the way back and write this letter to try to get them to truly accept him as he is. None of us have ever put up with the hatred, the animosity, the rejection that he lived with day by day, hour by hour, and minute by minute. And he never did a thing wrong. He never did anything. He was absolutely lovable, absolutely helpful, serving, giving, doing all he could to show love. And in fact, finally died to truly show that love. We read last night in Romans 5-7 that scarcely even for a righteous man would any of us actually lay down our life for someone else. Oh yeah, in a panic moment, perhaps we would throw ourselves in front of a car to save someone else's life. But that's not a thought out thing, is it? That's just a reaction where somebody's getting hurt and you don't think of self for a moment and you jump out there and throw them out of danger. But how many of us would, with thought ahead of time, say, I would give my life for that person, whoever it might be. Count on all your fingers and toes and ears and eyes. How many people you would count that you would actually say, I'd give my life for that person. I doubt I'd do it for the whole world. There's a lot of people out there that are pretty despicable, you know. And I value my life pretty well, pretty highly. I don't think that for most people I would volunteer and say, oh, you're going to hang that one, you're going to give them a lethal injection? I'll back off, I'll, I'll take it. I doubt if I'd do it for most people. I doubt if I'd do it for many people. I'm not even sure I'd do it for anybody. Maybe. I hope that I would. I wish that I would. Well, we can know, can't we? Because if we're faithful in little things and we present our bodies as a living sacrifice day by day, if we're faithful in little, we'd be faithful in much. So it just might be, if we live our lives properly and have our attitudes right toward people to begin with, and do love them the way God wants us to love them, maybe we would be willing, even though it might give us a lump in our throat. Maybe we could. Maybe we would. Strongest drive within us is to live. God placed there. And we try to live regardless. As we approach this book, I want us to understand a little bit 
we read last night even, uh, John 15. We need to comprehend how much he truly loves us. There's a lot of it in Matthew 14, I mean in John 14, 15, 16, 17. And we read it all last night, but I, I want to pick out two or three things here as we get into this today. Uh, chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. If you want to know that God will love you, he says if you keep his commandments, he will love you. Verse 12. This is my commandment. Okay, if you keep his commandments, he will love you. Now he tells you what his commandment is. It is that you love one another as I have loved you. How much did he love you? Enough that he gave his life for you. You can't love anybody more than that. Greater love has no man than this. He goes on to say that. There is no greater love than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now that might be physically, lay down and die for them, but it can mean dying daily for them, serving them, giving, helping, loving, accepting, treating them with favor, with honor, with love. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. You always want to know, well, how am I going to get so-and-so to be my friend? He tells you right here how you can be a friend of God. You are my friends if you do what I command you. From now on I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. You tell your best friend almost everything. He said, here, I tell you, my friends, everything. Doesn't hold anything back from us. That's incredible. Sometimes even the best of friends, we're a little leery of telling everything. And maybe it isn't wise always to tell everything. He doesn't have anything bad to say about what he knows and believes. So he can afford to tell everything. Sometimes we can't. And it would hurt us and hurt other people if we did tell them everything. So we have to use wisdom in that sense. Notice chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He says, If you'll do what I say, I'll come and I'll move in. I'll live with you. That's a pretty big step, isn't it? To say, All right, I'm moving in. You better like each other quite a bit if you're going to move in. That's what he plans. That's how much he loves us if we will do what he says. Did you notice this one last night? John 17. Let's look at verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Do you grasp what he's saying there? He's saying that if we are one with him, 
The Father loves us as much as he loves Christ. That's a big one to get your mind and your emotions around. We look at ourselves and think, how could he possibly, the Father, love us as much as he loved that son? But that's, in essence, what he's saying here. And this isn't the only scripture that says it. There are others. Verse 26 end of the verse, wherewith you have loved me may be, uh, wherewith you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So he says, love me, love them like you love me. And the Father accepts that because they are one and the same in mind. It says all through here that they want us to be one as they are one together. Chapter 17, verse 11, for instance. So he loves us as disgusting as we can sometimes be. You know, Christ became annoyed with people at times, didn't he? What was so annoying about them? Well, he just couldn't stand hypocrisy. So he calls some people snakes and serpents and smelly interiors of sepulchers and all kinds of things. There in one chapter, I mean, he laid it on them because he was annoyed with their attitudes. Have you ever in your life cast back again, been around some, whether it was in school or church or the job, the workplace or wherever, somebody that just annoyed you in no end? You could just look at their face and know they were going to say something or think something that you wouldn't like. Boss, co-worker, somebody girl or the boy sitting on the desk next to you in school, personality conflict, whatever you want to call it. You just knew before the day was over they were going to annoy you to the dickens. Hard to live with someone like that. They just irritate you. All you have to do is hear their name or see them coming up the road. And you know, oh, man. Here comes so-and-so. How am I going to deal with this? That's a tough one. I'm going to confess to you, I know someone like that. And it might just do me good to get it off my chest. Someone that just annoys me I every day. That Daryl Henson. You know what I mean? He really irritates me at times. I know, just as sure as I see him in the mirror in the morning, he's going to say some stupid thing that he's going to regret the rest of the day. He's going to annoy himself no end. He's going to think some things he should not think. He's going to... Attitude? Oh, he'll have attitudes? I can count on it. Lived around him for a long time. Sometimes I can barely stand him. Sometimes I can't. I don't know how his wife lives with him. Must annoy her too. I'll bet he annoys God. <laughs> you know? If he was annoyed by the Pharisees, he could be annoyed by us. 
He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was grieved at what he saw around him. He didn't have to be grieved at himself because he never did anything wrong. But it did bother him that other people made mistakes, that other people sinned, that other people hurt other people because that's what sin is. Sin really hurts other people. Now you may think that you're doing something or thinking something that isn't going to hurt anybody, but it will. Sooner or later, somehow or another, if it is not in accord with God's way, his way of thinking in his life, it will hurt someone else. You can bet on it. Now here was a man that the whole world rejected. He annoyed almost everyone. A few came to know him and know him well, and they loved him, and they did what he said. But for the most part, they didn't like him. He was unacceptable. It wasn't that he wasn't pleasant and nice for the most part. It's just that they didn't like what he said. Every time he opened his mouth, they could count on something coming out his mouth that annoyed them. Because they might have to accept responsibility for their thoughts and the words that came out of their mouths and their attitudes. And we don't like that. So they didn't like him. And still today, as I said, they don't like anything he says. Even though they accept his name. So let's go back and review here in Hebrews just a moment. I'll try not to get too sidetracked today. God, who at different times and in different manners spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. You Jews, God did speak to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as I said last time. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. We went to Matthew 17, I think it is, in the Transfiguration, and showed that God said, this is my son. Hear him. Listen to him. Nobody wanted to. So let's consider this one. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Here is someone so great that he is the heir apparent of everything. And he also created everything. That is truly the in crowd. If you want to be on the in crowd, if you want to be accepted, be accepted by the one who is going to inherit everything and who made everything and who owns everything. The silver and gold is mine, says the Lord in Haggai 2 and other places. He has and is everything. Now, if you ever wanted to be in with someone, maybe you set your sights too low. You could be in with the two most powerful beings alive. And they have offered to come and live with you. Set up house with you. The one has even offered to marry you. How can you beat it? Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person 
and upholding all things by the word of his power. The most righteous, most glorious, whose face shines like the sun in its full glory. He is so holy, so powerful. Couldn't find anybody handsomer. Now, he wasn't much to look at it when he was here. Wasn't anything anybody would want to look at, Isaiah 53 says. But that's changed now. He has been restored to glory. And everything he says is upheld by the word of his power. He never lies, always tells the truth, and he can back it up. He can do anything he says he will do and will. When he had by himself purged our sins, he cleaned up all sin on earth just by dying. Now, there's somebody to get to know. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Had he sinned once, he would have stayed in the grave, never been resurrected. But he never sinned. And now he's sitting on high, the sides of the north, on the throne beside his father. Being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. God gave him an inheritance that is far greater than that of the angels. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He hasn't offered that to any angels. We read in the Bible about the angels and how beautiful they are, how spectacular, how intelligent, how powerful. And yet to them has not been offered what he offered us. Friendship, marriage, to share the entire universe, up to half the kingdom, if you will, or all the kingdom with him as one, even better. And again, when he brings in the first begotten into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So those powerful, holy cherubim and all the, the other angels worship him. And mankind despises and rejects him because they don't like his way of life. They don't like his rules. But the angels love him. You see, the angels saw one fall and take a third of the angels with him. And they can observe to this day how bitter, how angry, how frustrated, how unaccepting of their attitudes they still are. They will not repent. They have such pride at this point that rather than turn and repent, they would rather live in absolute misery than accept that they were wrong. Isn't that incredible? And who do they blame? God. That's who they blame for their plight. They won't blame themselves. They've got to blame their Father, God in heaven. The angels of God worship him. Verse 7 of the angels, he says, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But under the sun, he says, he says, I'll make you angels a flame of fire. You can go about the universe at the, more than at the speed of light, instantly, to go here, to go there. Powerful, wonderful, 
glorious beings. But to the Son of Man, he says, or the Son of God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, if you were unaccepting of Christ, these would be pretty strong words. Stop to think about it. So he's laying it on them. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. There's the standard for us. To absolutely love righteousness and to hate iniquity. That's inhuman. True. Therefore God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. It's anointed above everyone. God is, was willing to do that because here was a being who absolutely loved doing things the right way and hated doing things the wrong way that led to misery and suffering. And you, Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the works of your hands. They shall perish, but you remain. They all shall wax old as does a garment. And as a piece of clothing shall you fold them up, and they shall be changed. But you are the same, and your years shall not fail. What he's saying here metaphorically is, even though the earth itself were to be folded up and laid away and set aside, Christ will live there forever and evermore. He's not like physical things. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? These Jews liked Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a lot. And they would have loved it if an angel had come and talked to them or given them a vision or a dream. They'd have really liked that. But they were having trouble accepting Christ. And so do you and I. We have a war going on within us to accept him as he is. Not as the world may think he is, but to accept him as he truly is. Where he loves his Father's commandments, and he loves us with his whole heart, mind, body, and soul. He loves us that much, so much he was willing to die for us. And these people were even rejecting his death and his sacrifice for them. Rejected him entirely. We give him lip service as a Protestant Christian world, but still reject him. Because what is he? He's righteous. He keeps all the rules. People can't stand that. So what about the angels? Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? They were created, made, to do what? To serve you and me. As mighty and as powerful as they are, and if one were to come through this wall and land right here, shining like a flame of fire, we would all be scared to death. because of the brightness and the power and the holiness and the righteousness of those angels. And here we are, very human and subject to insecurities and frustrations and lack of love and all the complex things that make up the human psyche. And that would scare us spitless. 
to have an angel show up right here. And yet, he created them for us. He made them to serve us, to help us, to protect us, to be around us. Powerful as they are. You know, somewhere along the line, we need to accept the fact that God really does like us. Well, he loves us. Sometimes we're hard to be likable, maybe. He loved the Pharisees, but he didn't like a lot of the things they did. But consider that here's the one who made everything, owns everything, is everything, is the second most powerful being in the universe, and he has all these holy angels at our disposal to serve us, to help us through life and what on, and everything else. You know, human beings are impressed if they meet a celebrity, if they get to see a real-life president. I've heard people over my lifetime say, I've seen two presidents in my life. I'm really impressed with that. Or I, boy, I saw a movie star. Or I went to a concert and saw my favorite singer. Or whatever it might be that impresses them. We see someone we think is important or the, has something that we really like and we can see or meet or talk to or observe him across the street or across the stage, that person, and we carry with that with us the rest of our lives. It impresses us so deeply. And that's just a stinking, selfish, greedy human being behind that facade of whatever celebrity is there. And we're so impressed. We don't see God, so sometimes we're less impressed by him than by some human being that has a celebrity status. Let's go on in chapter 2. Therefore, considering all that God has given, this individual the Christ, the Messiah, Savior. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And we've heard an awful lot out of this book over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, depending how long we've been listening to the truth. And he says, we ought to really give Diligent attention, earnest heed to what we've heard, lest any of it should slip away from us. It's so easy, isn't it, to get on with life and some of God's words slip, some of the things he tells us to do, slip. If we don't remind ourselves through reading his word and thinking about it a lot, it's easy for something to slip away because right now we might have a want, a desire. And we can be so consumed by whatever desire or want that is that it's so easy to forget everything else that we know. And we might in a moment shake our head and say, wow, how did I go there when I was supposed to be here? But it's so easy, isn't it? Be diligent about it. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience 
received a just recompense of reward. God has a rule by law. He established that with ancient Israel, whereby if you did this or this, you die. Put to death for it. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Offered marriage to the king of the universe. How many stories, how many movies, how many books have been written about the fairy princess and the knight in shining armor who came to whisk her away and they lived happily ever, ever, ever after? That is the theme of so many, many different stories. And here we have the king of the entire universe that is willing to take us to his father's throne for a year's honeymoon and bring us back and build us the finest house that anybody has ever known and provide us the most children that anyone has ever had and give us an absolute fantasy dream world beyond anything that anyone on earth has ever even fantasized, and far beyond what anyone on earth could have ever produced. You can produce some pretty good fantasies in your mind, can't you? Now go out and produce those. Girls, remember all those things your husband said he would do and be if you'd marry him? I don't know whether he's produced all of it or not. I'll climb the highest mountains. I'll swim the widest sea. You know, they make some pretty stupendous promises sometimes. Hard to live up to it in day-to-day life, isn't it? Works the other way, too. Remember all the things she said she'd be? I'll bet that every last one of us has fallen short, to one degree or another, of the sale job we made on our mate. Maybe we have a decent and happy relationship to one degree or another, but none of us have lived up to what we said we would or thought we could. But here's someone who says, I not only say it, it's going to be better than I tell you. That sounds like something to go with, doesn't it? Yes, I'm for that. I'll do that. Remember ancient Israel? Oh, yeah, we'll go out there. We'll obey you. Bet. Where's the water? Aren't you going to feed us? Tested them a little bit. Fell on their nose right away. But let's don't go there today. Let's go where Paul went. Paul was trying to show these people that here's someone who not only made promises, but could produce, and had. He'd come and lived an absolutely perfect life, never made a mistake, never lied, never cheat, never stole, never fornicated, never broke the Sabbath. Incredible. Never put himself ahead of his Father in heaven. I can't imagine. You can't either. Here's somebody that can and did deliver. 
How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by them that heard him? Paul, if he wrote this, and I think he did, was not there to hear it originally like the apostles were. But they heard him, and later on, see, they didn't believe him either. They didn't get it. He was always telling them, oh, you of little understanding. I mean, he was right there with them, and they couldn't quite get it. Aren't you listening? Any of you wives ever say, he just doesn't listen. He doesn't listen to anything I say. And I say, I did hear you. Well, what did that say? Well, <laughs> you know, we don't always listen, do we? At least not where we get it. Verse 4, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with different miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. God, through Christ, healed people, raised the dead, and through the apostles later on, their very shadow-crossing people would heal them. They even resurrected people from doornail dead on more than one occasion. Pretty impressive. For the angels, as he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Here is someone that is going to resurrect anyone you ever loved. That's a pretty good benefit, isn't it? You know, people sometimes take jobs for the bennies. Here is someone, if you loved a grandmother, a grandfather, a mate, a child, or a child that was born and died and you never even got to know. Here's someone that's going to actually, literally resurrect that child. He's going to resurrect everyone that anybody ever loved. Unbelievable. Or is it? Do you believe it? Sometimes he rejects people for unbelief. That's why faith is going to be hard to come by when Christ returns. It's just hard to believe these stories. He can produce. Verse 5, for to the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. He's going to put the world in our subjection. He's never done that with the angels. He's never turned the earth over for them to rule. But he's promised us we'll be kings and priests and teachers, and we will rule the world. There are people right now who would give their eye teeth and their right and left arm both if they could rule the world. And you watch them running around starting wars and trying to run banks and various, all the different things they do to try to rule the world. And they'll never get there. It'll never happen. And when they think they have it made, when they think they finally took over and are ruling the world, their feet of iron and miry clay are going to collapse on them. They're going to fall on their behinds. So all that they've dreamed of is going to turn to mud. 
But he's told you and me. If we just follow the rules, love each other the way he loved us, keep his commandment, and that is that we love each other, he'll let us rule the world. You see, if we don't learn to love one another, we don't learn to love everybody in that sense, we're not equipped to rule. It doesn't come down to little technicalities of doctrine necessarily, or a Greek word in the exact right interpretation of it. Those are small things. Paul told us clearly, do not strive over Greek words, or Hebrew words. Don't strive over words. And yet, that is what so many people do. He's told us not to pay any attention to genealogies. There's a whole Mormon church up here. Hundreds of thousands of members who spend hours and weeks and months and years tracing out their genealogies to see, be sure that every one of their relatives got baptized. And if they didn't, put me under, I get baptized for them by proxy. So things that God tells us do not do through misunderstanding or weakness or whatever, we do anyway. I don't care if you speak Greek and Hebrew and ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek perfectly and you don't love your brother, you're nothing. You can understand all prophecy and have all knowledge and still amount to zero. Do we comprehend that, brethren? I know we know it. Do we comprehend it? That we can do all those things that 1 Corinthians 13 says, and if we don't really, from the heart, love each other and treat each other with love and respect, we amount, in God's eyes, to zero. That's what it's all about. How do we treat each other in daily life like Christ did? It's hard to imagine when you understand humans and human nature that God could love us as much as he does. Now that's what he expects us to do is come to have that same kind of concern and feeling for each other that he has for us. That's all he asks. And he says, if you will do that, I will put you in charge of the earth. That is frankly how rare that kind of love is. Because human beings are in it for number one, self. Greed, jealousy, envy, spite, malice. Put someone else down to make yourself feel better. That's the way to rule a world of chaos. A world of chaos and confusion and war, which is what we have today. God will not put us in charge of anything until we learn to love and care and share and give. That's what it's all about. And you don't need to know all the Greek and the Hebrew in order to do that, do you? In fact, the business, the Greek and the Hebrew and the knowledge and knowledge of prophecy and all these things can actually get in the way 
because knowledge puffs up. It creates vanity and ego and self-righteousness. And those are not qualities which can be used to rule the world. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. He is going to try to he is going to find humble, loving, giving servants who would help anyone. He takes the weak in the base and makes mighty and noble out of them. Maybe if we're weak and base enough, we'll come to recognize that love is what it's all about. That's what's needed, because that's what he, what he was. He gave and served his whole time here. Always willing. A servant. And then died in service of us. Verse 5, For unto the angel has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Why would beings of the kind of power and the magnitude of God the Father and his Son pay any mind to us? We hardly pay in mind to each other sometimes, do we? What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the Son of Man that you visit him, that you care? that you're paying attention to it. You made him, speaking of Christ particularly, a little lower or for a little while inferior to or lower than the angels. He was made a human being on this earth, subject to death. Gave up everything that he had, everything that he was for you and for me so that he could die for us. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, hey, you know, wait a minute. We created them and they went astray and they've been going astray ever since. Why bother? Let them live and die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Mankind, for the most part, has adopted that viewpoint. Not realizing that there's something so much greater. You made him for a while inferior to the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor that set him over the works of your hands. How could you not accept someone like this? Every Jew and every human being on earth ought to read this book and grasp what it's talking about, what it's saying about this great being. You crowned him with glory and honor and it set him over the works of your hands. Gave him to rule the world. Why? Because he was a servant. He was willing to help and love and serve and give. That is the primary qualification to rule the earth. It isn't intelligence. It isn't power. It isn't force of personality. It isn't charisma or magnitude. or uh, What's the word I was looking for there? a magnanimous type of person. Just somebody that loves. Somebody that cares. It's the kind he's looking for. Because he knows that the world will be in good hands with someone with that attitude. It's all about attitude, isn't it? 
How would it be if God decided, well, let's see, I'll just randomly, instead of having qualifications here and people who are responsible and who've learned to govern themselves, and that's partly why I spent so much time on that last sermon, people who've not really learned to control their emotions, their thoughts, and their attitudes, just people, I'll just randomly pick them down here. I need 144,000. I'll take that one, that one, this one. Yeah, it's okay. And they all got together and they started yakking about the rest. Oh, you know, so-and-so sure irritates and annoys me. Why don't you go down there and help? So-and-so's having a problem down there. Why don't you go down and help him? Ah, not today. I'm, I'm enjoying my whatever I'm having. Don't have time for that. Besides that, I'm pretty important now, you know. I'm God. Well, why would I bother with so-and-so down there, dirty rat? It wouldn't work very well, would it? Chaos, confusion, frustration, playing favorites. You know, if we were God and we hadn't gotten where we really love people the way God does, we'd play favorites. You know, I kind of like old Tom there. Oh, him? No, forget it. I'm just going to bless this one. Here comes showers of blessings. Tom, don't look up. Here they come. Wow. Showers of blessings. I wouldn't give that one time of day. What if God, God forbid, were human in his reactions? The world wouldn't be worth living in. We have to learn to love everyone. That's a hard saying. Then God can trust us with the universe. And that's what Christ came down here and did. He loved everyone. Now, he got annoyed at them at times, and he told them what they were. But you see, he was trying to actually make them more lovable. And they wouldn't listen. That's all he was trying to do, was make them lovable. I mean, look at the pack of hypocrites the Pharisees were. They just really weren't that lovable. So he told them, here's what you need to change. Now, you and I aren't always that lovable. I annoy myself to tears sometimes, literally. And how bad must it be with you having to deal with me? So he wrote this whole book including this book that we're studying today in Hebrews, to try to make us more lovable. That's all it is. Treat each other with honor and love and respect. That's what this whole book is about. You set him over the works of your hands because he had proved that he was truly a servant in every way. Verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Here was somebody who loved more than anybody had ever loved. And the father said, I'm going to give it all to him. I won't hold anything back. He can rule it all. That's how awesome it is. 
in God's eyes to have someone who is an absolute true servant willing to give, even to his own life also, willing to give his time, his energy, his mind to others. You put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. So he intends to, and the qualification has been made, and he has battled and defeated the enemy, Satan, who is not a servant of anyone. Satan offered him everything that the Father had given him as the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this evil world. He hasn't come back and taken over yet, have you noticed? The world is still under the sway of Satan, the devil, and it is still full of animosity, hate, bitterness, pride, vanity, greed, envy, everything that is unloving. It's full of it. So it hasn't all been put under subjection, but it's going to happen soon. And any knee that will not bow to the Son of God is going to be bent even if it breaks it. Or they'll die. Maybe come up in a resurrection and say, now you're ready to listen. All right. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. He tasted death. Have you ever been so near to death that it was palpable? You could almost taste death coming. I've seen the world going round and round as my car flipped over a few times, more than once. And... I was trying to see death, but it kept going round and round. I couldn't quite get a handle on it. But I was scared. I've been in a lot of situations in my life where things were after me that had teeth and claws and, and rocks rolling down the hill or snow or, you know, you, you could go on and on. I've had people tell me they were going to kill me. I had one man, we'd gone to visit his wife and I think two or three other women Two of us, my assistant and I, and he hated the church. Oh, did he hate the church. And we happened to be there when he came home one day, sitting in the living room, nothing out of line at all. There was four or five people there. And he said, get out of my house, and if I ever see you here again, I will shoot you dead in the front yard. I kind of believed him. You know, I just sort of did. He died of a heart attack a week or ten days later. I'm not saying there was any connection. It's just, man, oh, did he hate, livid. We'd never done anything to him. All we'd done was tell his wife he ought to start keeping the Sabbath and, and uh, accept God and Christ the way he really is. He didn't like that at all. He tasted death for every man. When he was being beaten and stripped, whipped, Thorns jammed in his skull. There was a taste of death and bitterness there 
And when you're tasting your own blood running down from your head and into your mouth and into your tongue, you're tasting death. Because you lose your blood and you're dead. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Christ suffered a lot while he was here on the earth. Did he suffer because monkeys didn't like him or lizards ran from him? I don't think so. He suffered because men hated and rejected everything he had to say. How would you like it if every time you walked up to someone and began to speak to them, they'd say, oh, get off it, go away. That's basically the way he was treated. Now, there were hangers-on that would come and listen in hopes of maybe seeing someone healed or demons cast out. But through, and I've said this before, through his entire life, and through his entire ministry, not one person was ever converted by a teaching session or a sermon by our Savior. Even his own disciples were still not converted after he died. And it wasn't until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and changed their minds and let them understand spiritual things that they ever became converted. The, most, the only perfect human being who ever walked the face of this earth did not impress many people very much, very often. He was despised and rejected of men. Do we believe that? The Protestant taught us that he walked around with a halo and he glowed. And everybody fell in line and followed him everywhere he went and hung on every word he said. Baloney! not what the Bible says. That's what the Protestants tried to tell you. No, he was despised and rejected and hated of all the leaders and most of the people. And even those who thought this sounded good, oh great teacher, never did do what he said. They rejected his message. And in rejecting it, they rejected him. He was made mature through suffering. You think you've ever been rejected? You don't even know. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brothers. As much as we have spit on, misused, and abused him in our lives, he's not ashamed to call us brothers saying, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the church will I sing praise to you. Quoting from Psalms. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. He had to come and absolutely live a perfect life without ever making a mistake in order to defeat the greatest sinner of all. To overcome he which will lead us down the path to death. 
None of us have denied the devil to that degree. We're fighting it. Hopefully we're resisting him so that he'll flee from us. And we're getting rid of vanity and pride and ego so that God will not resist us but draw near to us. And he says he'll look to him who is humble and of a contrite spirit and trembles at his word. Do we really tremble at God's word? Can you look, pick up the Bible and read it and not have it affect you? When we read what this book says, it should cause a lump in our throat a lot of the time to really fear and tremble before these words which are so against everything that we intrinsically are. Human nature is just the opposite of God. We by nature do not want the things of God except blessings. We don't want the ways of God. We want to do our thing our way whenever we want to. Please our five senses. It's what we're about. Unless we begin to have the power and the spirit of God to transcend and control those senses. And no one can control them but you. Gordon can come up here. Nelson can. Terry can. Bill. Whoever we allocate to speak to us. They can come up and tell us what God says and tell us what we ought to do. Can't do it for us. We have to do that ourselves. We're the only ones that control or can control our minds, our feelings, our thoughts, our attitudes, and bring them into the subjection of Christ. It is amazing what he was able to do because he was a human being who... Well, let's go on down. I'll read it to you. Verse 15, And deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We're bound by our human nature, our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts that would lead to death. For truly, he took not on him the nature of angels. He was God. He didn't just go down one level and have the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Abraham was a man. Christ divested himself of his humanity, I mean of his godliness, and became a man. He wasn't half God and half man while he was here. He was man and died. If he's half God and half man, which half died? <laughs> no, he became a human being subject to death. Verse 17, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like to his brethren. In all things. He was tempted in all points like as we are. There is no temptation that has ever occurred to any human being that did not occur to Christ. He had every desire, every pull to be selfish, to be greedy, to be vain, to be jealous, to be lustful, to lie, to cheat, to steal. He had every desire that ever has been known to man or woman. Every one of them never gave in 
but he had to have those temptations and resist them in order to be what? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Here was God who had never been tempted to sin. Can, I, I don't think we can even begin to imagine what it would be like never to be tempted to do the wrong thing. It's beyond our comprehension. We have lived with temptation all our lives. And you know, I've found that that's the only thing that I can't stand up against. Temptation. Been subject to it all my life. And it is only by hard work and pleading and prayer to God that I can resist temptation. When we're in a tight spot, we're really tempted to lie our way out, aren't we? When we see something that someone else has that we would like to have, we're really tempted to be greedy and envious and jealous, aren't we? I mean, it just goes on and on. We're tempted to eat too much. We're tempted to sleep too long. We're tempted to play instead of work. Not that it's wrong to play, but when you're supposed to work, you're supposed to work. We're tempted to sit down when we need to accept responsibility. We're tempted to accept ourselves as we are rather than changing, which is difficult to do. We are tempted to watch TV rather than study God's Word because one's pleasurable and the other's hard work. We are tempted every day, constantly, and have to make wise and proper decisions. And it's hard to resist human nature and do it God's way. Very difficult. But he went through every temptation that you and I have ever suffered from the time we were born until this day and never gave in so that he can be merciful and faithful. We see people every day who are tempted as we are. We don't give them the benefit of the doubt, do we? We can be pretty mean and nasty and unmerciful, unforgiving and unloving when we see other people's faults, can't we? When we know their sins, or we think we know their sins. We think we can read their minds and their attitudes. Maybe we're right, maybe we're wrong. The point I'm making is we can be very unmerciful and unkind in the things we say and think about each other. He never gave in to do that. But he did and was tempted to do that every day, just like we are. And therefore, he can be merciful and faithful when he sees us fall short. Because he knows what it was like. He knows what it is like for you and me every day. You know, he's trying to sell our Savior to us. That's what this book really is all about. Are we buying? To be merciful and faithful as a high priest in things pertaining to God 
to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He was able in his death to wipe away all our sins. And he was willing to do it. Didn't have to. He could have said, wait just a minute. Father, I haven't sinned. I don't deserve to die. He didn't do it. Forgive them, Father. That includes you and me and those people that were killing him. They don't know what they're doing. They don't really realize what's happening here. And he died for us. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help, to strengthen, to succor, to feed them that are tempted. We can go to him. We can gain strength and help, food, energy, spiritual food and energy to withstand temptation. Because he did it and he knows exactly what it's all about. And therefore he can understand. He is very understanding. We have often with human beings gone to them and we were afraid to talk, weren't we? Because we were afraid they just wouldn't understand. We were afraid of rejection. We were afraid they wouldn't like us or they'd disrespect us or they'd tell their best friend about what we said. For whatever reason, we have trouble trusting. And believe me, we've seen enough things in our lives that make us that way. Haven't we? We can trust him. He's done it all. He went through it all. There is nothing you have ever been tempted to think or do that he was not tempted to think or do. So he understands. And not only that, he loves. And it is his joy. It is his desire it is his glory to cover sin and not let it be known, to hide it. That doesn't mean he condones it and accepts it. But if we sin and we ask for his forgiveness, he says, my blood's that big, it'll cover it. And we can say, thank you, I knew you'd understand. Let's leave it at that for today.